You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to James chapter 5. How many of you are glad that there's only five chapters in the book of James? I don't think I can handle 30 chapters of the book of James. I hope that... uh, Hope you have some time to spend with your family this weekend, but especially to uh, give God thanks for the freedom that we have in this country. Uh, It really is unique. Um, It really should be protected, and it should be celebrated. And I hope that you'll have some time to to do that today, tomorrow, with your family. Let's pick it up in James chapter 5, verse 13. So we walk through the entire book. We're going to wrap it up today. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him or her, anointing him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, we bow before you and we thank you for your goodness and grace. We do thank you for the freedom that we have here in this country. We know, Father, that it is precious. We know that that many have sacrificed much to make it possible. But, Father, also even greater is the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom to live our lives with purpose, with joy, with peace, as adopted sons and daughters, that, Father, we can live our life with confidence. Confidence not only in this life, but confidence in the next. Father, we know that your word says that there are two paths. There is a narrow path. There is a narrow gate that leads to that narrow path. And, Father, your word says that there are few who find it, and there are few who are traveling it. But, Father, there is a wide path, an easy path, a path that requires nothing of us. And Lord, you said that the end of that path is destruction. And Father, we recognize that the majority of the world is on that path. So Father, we pray that not only in what we have to talk about today, but Lord, what we've talked about over over the last many weeks, that authentic faith, saving faith, is a faith that is tangible, that is real, that has works connected to it as evidence that we've come from darkness into light. Father, may we, may we be committed to more than just hollow rituals. May, may the change in our life that you made possible through the cross, Father, may that be more than just something we do on Sunday. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we thank you for your love that pursued us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to go back several years to when I turned 15 
and I got my driver's permit. Uh, at that time, there was only one single focus I had, and that was to get a car. I wanted a car, and I wanted it as soon as I could possibly get it. And my dad approached me with a deal. He said, look, you, you raise some money, you work out some money. Of course, I was working on the farm with him. And whatever money you raise, I'll match it dollar for dollar. And I'm thinking, that sounds like a great deal. So all of a sudden, I got really focused on work. Uh, I was already working on the farm, but I started picking up some yards to mow. And I started saving my money, knowing that at some point, my dad was going to match me dollar for dollar for whatever money I'd been able to save. And with that money, we'd be able to buy a car. So I worked hard, and I saved up a grand amount of 750 bucks. Now, again, this is 1985. 750 bucks buys a lot more in 85 than it does today. Nonetheless, I thought that was more than enough because Dad put another 750 with it. That gets me to 1500. I can just imagine the car that we can buy for 1500 bucks. As a matter of fact, I already had the car in my head. The car that I wanted was the car I'd been looking at and by the way, folks, this is long before internet, so I'm looking at newspapers, you know, those things, right? And I, there was this car that I wanted. It was none other than the grand Pontiac Fiero. Now, everybody that's in my age group, just like, yeah, I know that car. The rest of you are like, what's he talking about? Look it up on the internet. It's a two-seater car, one of the only two-seaters other than a Corvette, and another, another unique item of this car, the engine was in the back. Now, the only car that I knew of with an engine in the back was a Volkswagen Beetlebug, which I had zero interest in. But when I looked at that little sports car, and I wanted a red one, and I saw that two-seater and that five-speed, here's the first thing that I thought of. It wasn't gas mileage. It, it wasn't the shape of the car. It was how many girls, I'm just being honest, how many teenage girls would be attracted to me because I've got this sports car. The only problem was is that my dad had a whole different idea in mind. My dad had some good friends who were auto mechanics. My dad was a pretty good auto mechanic because on a farm you kind of have to fix everything so dad could fix about anything. But he had a couple of buddies and he knew that this was the car I was wanting. I brought it up, I don't know, 5,000 times. In about a four-month period, I told him about how great the car was. And you see, this is what I was telling my dad. Oh, it's great on gas. <laughs> my dad knew exactly what I was thinking here. So my dad took the uh, time to talk to a couple of buddies of his who were, had garages. And you know what they, they told him? They said, make sure your son buys any other car except a Pontiac Fiero. Because all they are is a piece of trash. You constantly have to work on them. They're constantly breaking down. So these two auto mechanics had already talked to my dad and said, do not go down that path. We're working on them constantly. So we're in an impasse. I want the red sports car. Dad's thinking practical. And in my mind, practical was some big family car four-door that no 16-year-old girl was ever going to come near He's thinking practical, I'm thinking sports car. So we're at an impasse here, so what do I do? Well, I, I get angry, and I, and I get mad, and I beg, and I fuss, and I leave newspaper clippings laying around the house of good deals on, on Pontiac Fieros. Dad was not budging an inch. 
So I fussed, and I cried, and I began to think, well, my dad just doesn't love me if he doesn't buy me this red sports car. My dad doesn't care about me. My dad told me that if, he, if I raised the money, he would match it. We'd go buy a car. Well, he's, he's backed out on his deal. He doesn't buy the, he's not going to buy the car that I want to buy. And you know how 15 and 16-year-olds can be, right? Well, that's exactly how I was. So finally, Dad knew if he waited me out long enough that, that eventually I'd give in. And Dad, Dad finds this really nice little Mustang. And I'm like, yeah, that's not bad. So we go in, we buy the car. A buddy of mine buys the Fiero that I wanted. Now, he said he bought that car, but the fact is I never actually saw him drive it much. You know why? Because it was always in the shop. And yet again, like so many times in my life, Dad was right. But Dad had more information than I had. Dad had more wisdom than I had. Dad had a lot of life. And so when he looked at my life at age 15, he's like, I know better than you. And trust me, but I'm going to help you get the car that not only is going to be practical, but that you'll like this car, and this car will be able to last for a long time, and you won't be sitting on the side of the road somewhere. You see, my dad was thinking, hey, here's what's best for you. I was only thinking what I thought was best for me. And you see, that's exactly what happens when we get in this tension between us and God the Father. We're asking God for things that we truly want and desire. And by the way, God invited us to do exactly that. God invites us, when we come to faith in Christ, God invites us into that kind of relationship. He says, come and talk with me about that. Come and make your petitions known, not only on your behalf, but on behalf of people you love. And, I, and oftentimes in my life, I have went to God the Father with the exact same short-sighted request that I had with my dad when I was 15 years old. We're all growing up in Christ, right? We're all still growing up in Jesus. And I'll be honest, there's times I pray for things that are short-sighted, that doesn't have the big picture in view that, quite frankly, I don't even have access to. But did you know that, that God will say to me, uh, no, <laughs> no, I got something better for you. Something that's not going to leave you on the side of life stranded. God's a good father, and, and he's adopted me as his son, and, and, and my father wants the best for me, and so my father's going to give me the best for me, not necessarily what I think is best for me, but what he knows is best for me, because you know why? He has a much bigger view than mine, far more wisdom, far more clarity. He sees next week, next year, a million years from now. I'm doing good to see past lunch today. So James takes us to prayer as he closes out his letter. James has told us that authentic faith, real faith, saving faith, is a faith that has works accompanied with it. And James has laid out what those things look like. He's talked about, like last week, he talked about patience. Quite frankly, last week was not one of my favorite sermons. I didn't like it. I have a problem with patience. But nonetheless, right there in that paragraph, James says that we're to be patient like a farmer who realizes he doesn't have control over the harvest or the seed. James says that we're to be patient, long-suffering, just like the prophets who, although they had a message, they didn't let the suffering that they confronted 
to quieten their message. They continue to be faithful to God. And then James brings out that age-old example of patience and long-suffering Job. And he points us to the reality that even though Job didn't understand what God was doing, God had great purpose in what he was doing, even though he didn't reveal that purpose to Job. So James says that authentic faith is a faith that has tangible, measurable, visible works associated with saving faith. But James says also there is a dead faith, a faith that does not save, and that faith has no works accompanied with it. James says today, and as we look in verses 13 and following, that authentic faith is a faith that prays. It's a faith that seeks God for guidance and wisdom. So James is going to raise some questions, and then he's going to give us his last example, a prophet by the name of Elijah. So James is going to raise some questions. So as James raises these questions, I begin to think about there may be questions that you've got that you've never asked concerning prayer. I mean, I don't know if you've done this, but I've done this. You know, we, we're following Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus, and then there's these things that we, we see happening within the church or within other people's lives who are following Jesus. And, and we've got this question on our heart, but we don't ask because it's almost like we're expected to know it. So we feel kind of like, I don't know, kind of like we're ignorant if we don't already know. So we just act like we know, but we really don't. So the questions I'm going to raise come right out of this text, and I, I, would, I would dare say it may be some questions that, that you've had on your heart. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. So the first question I want to ask, and it may be kind of an elementary question, is when should we pray? I know it's an elementary question, but I think it's a, a very important question. Because I'm guilty of only praying when things are off the rails. I'm guilty of that in my past. So the idea is, is that as long as, as, long as I have all the all the stuff lined up, all my ducks are in a row, and I've got more income in my account than outgo. Not having a lot of that right now, you probably aren't either. Your outgo is exceeding your income. As long as the bank is full, as long as, as long as my job is secure, as long as my marriage is good, as long as my kids are happy, as long as these things are all lined up, we tend to slack off in our praying. Why is that? It's because in those moments, we begin to take credit for all the good things that are happening in our life. Well, I'm doing better at work. I'm working hard, and they're, they're giving me a promotion. So I'm, I'm, I'm the result of that. Well, my kids are doing good because I've met all their needs. I've, they've got all the stuff they need. Well, you know, my health is good because I'm working out, and I feel good, and I'm eating right, and, and all, everything is lined up. So we begin to think that we are the result or we are the cause of all of these great blessings. So what do we do? We don't pray. Notice what James says. James says, hey, if you're suffering, pray. Hey, if you're happy, pray. Cheerful is the word you might have. Hey, if you're sick, pray. You know what James is saying? James is saying that when we pray, when we're supposed to pray, is in all seasons, ups and downs, highs and lows, as we walk through this life, you may be, suffering. You may be in a season of suffering right now. It may be because of financial. It may be because 
something's going on with your house and it's just worrying you to death. It may be because your job is about to, to, to shut down or you're about to lose your position. Or maybe you just got demoted because of cost savings at your company. Uh, maybe, maybe you're suffering because of an illness. You're suffering because of a marriage that has went off the rails. You're suffering because of somebody else's decisions, but you're suffering. Now, it's in that suffering that we understand prayer. Because that's the places where we oftentimes run to God, and absolutely, that's what we should do. God invites us to come to him with all of that suffering. But then James says, hey, if you're cheerful, if you're happy, then, then praise him. And I believe that James is talking within the context of prayer, that in our prayers, we are to be praising him, not just when things are going good, but in all circumstances. But especially if you're happy, especially if you are well, things are going well, and you're in a prosperous season of your life. You know why you're prosperous? You know why this season came? Not because you're good, not because you're all that. It's because God has poured it out of his hands into your life. Let's thank him for it and praise him for it. But he also says, if you're sick, physically sick. Notice what he says. He says, let them call for the elders. Now, when he uses this him. And he, just understand that in the original languages, it includes both men and women. So he's not just focusing on if men are sick, when anyone is sick. He says, if you are sick, let's, and I would imagine that James is talking about within the context here, you're someone who's confined at home, maybe can't come to a fellowship like this, and they're hurting, they're sick. Many of you have been in that situation. Many of you have been in a place where you were bedridden, and you really long for someone to be there with you. James says, if you're sick and you're in that situation, even if you can come, you can still call upon the elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the servants of the congregation, and let them come and pray over them, anointing them with oil. So when should we pray? Well, in all seasons, in all times of our life, both ups and downs, it's going to look a little crazy to some of your friends. There, no doubt in my mind, there's been times where I've been sitting in a parking lot. Oftentimes, I'll talk to the Lord in the car, turn the radio off, and I'm just talking to the Lord. No doubt I've been sitting at a stoplight, and the person sitting to me next to me, you know, I don't have the little Bluetooth thing on. Maybe they think I'm talking on the phone since that's possible now, but I'm just talking to the Lord. I didn't start out doing that. It's something that, that God's developed in me over time as I've tried to grow up in Jesus. But I'm trying to have an ongoing conversation with the Lord all day. My wife's pastor, that she grew up most of her years in church growing up. Matter of fact, it's who she came to faith in Christ under his preaching and leadership in the church that she was in. He, got the, he and I became good friends after she and I were married. This man started preaching when he was 13 years old. 13. He was in continuous ministry for 70 years. One of the great privileges of my life is, is getting to do his funeral because of just the incredible integrity and character that this man had. And I would go, when I, when I was struggling with the calling to ministry, I went to him first and went into his home and, and we sat and talked and he, he had a little small, little small bedroom that was his office and he and I talked at length about what it meant to be called into the ministry because he was a man who'd been doing it all these years. And at 70 years of ministry, he'd only pastored five churches in 70 years. Commitment, loyal. 
when I would visit with him, there was always this wooden chair sitting over in the corner of his little office. There was just a little wingback wooden chair, like something left over from a tiny dining room set or something. And one day he told me why that chair was in the room. It wasn't necessarily for someone to sit in. He said that every time he would go into his study and pray every single day early in the morning, he would imagine that Jesus was sitting in that chair. He would imagine that Jesus is right there and that he would look Jesus in the eye that was sitting in that chair and he and Jesus would talk. Now that, folks, is a prayer life that I've been pursuing ever since I put my faith in Jesus and I'm not there yet. James says that, that the prayer of a person with authentic faith is a prayer that is consistent, a prayer that is prayed in all seasons of life, and it's a conversation. It, listen, you don't have to have all the fancy words. You don't have to have all the theological, doctrinal words. Just talk with Jesus. He, he's longing to have that conversation with you. Jesus paid the ultimate price that he could have that kind of relationship with you. What if, what if the only time you ever spoke to your spouse is when you needed something? Would that be a, just an overjoyful, just kind of relationship? In other words, the only time you have a conversation is when you need something from him or her. The rest of the time, there's no conversation. The rest of the time, you're just passing in the hallways. The rest of the time, you're just moving on with life. Would there be a deep longing there in that spouse for you to sit down and have a real conversation? Couples, how many times have you said to one another, man, we, we got to go out on a date. We got to go somewhere. Just sit down. Doesn't matter where we go. We can just have some adult conversation because maybe all your conversation is about the kids and the needs of the kids and maybe the needs of the grandkids now, depending on your season of life. Well, guess what? Jesus is wanting to have a conversation with you every day. And not only one where you speak to him, but get this, Jesus will speak to you. Does he really? Maybe not in a burning bush. But listen, folks, when I, when I pair God's word with my prayer life, here's what I found, found out, is that Jesus is speaking to me through his word. He speaks to me in that still small voice. There's those times where I'm driving in the car where I begin to pray and the Lord just begins to put your names, your faces in my mind. I don't know what you're dealing with in that moment. It's just your face came up. And, and I know when that happens that the Lord's saying, you need to pray for them right now. So when do we pray? In all seasons of life. Second question, how should we pray? Look at this, verse 14. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when should we pray? All seasons of life. How should we pray? Well, with other people. And the first group of people that James meets, mentions is the elders, the pastors, the leaders, the servants of the local church. Well, why does he bring that up? Because an elder, a pastor, is there to shepherd a flock, to love that flock, to care for that flock, to guide that flock. And yes, when that flock is hurting, whatever they're going through, we are called as ministers of the gospel to walk with you in those valleys where it's deep and it's wide, where it may be a physical sickness, it may be, it may be a financial problem, it may be that your life is crashing down. But listen, the point of what James is saying is you're not to walk that out alone. And one of the first groups of people you can contact and connect with who will be praying for you and will walk with you is the people that you have placed 
into servant roles here in this church. But not only that, James says, anointing him with oil. Did you know that that's the only place in the New Testament where that is prescribed to the church? Isn't that interesting? Now, in the Old Testament, we see lots of narratives where oil was brought out and anointing the priest or anointing some particular purpose for, for some particular season or ministry or life or situation that they were in. But in the New Testament, we have places where anointing happens, but this is the only place in the New Testament where it's prescribed as a ministry of the church. So now we have to kind of unpack that. So how should we pray? Well, we should pray together with the servants of our church. But also, if you need anointing, you can request that and we will do it. And here's what that means. There have been times down through my ministry, and I can remember the very first time somebody asked me to anoint them. I, they didn't teach me that in seminary. The first time I was out, I was at my previous church. I'm like, I don't know what to do. What, what, what are they asking me to do? And it came right out of this verse. But that person was asking me to do it because they thought, I didn't learn this till later, they thought that this bottle of oil that, that was just olive oil had some kind of magical power connected to it. This person was suffering from a debilitating illness and their faith was in this bottle of oil. Now that bottle of oil was nothing more than olive oil, the same thing you cook with at home. It was the same thing that James is referring to here. That's the kind of oil he was referring to. And, and in James's day, that oil would have had some medicinal purposes. You could have put it on a burn and it would help. But that's not what James is talking about here. James is not saying that this anointing oil has magical powers. The focus of James is not on the oil. The focus of James is on the power of God in that moment when the priests, the elders, the pastors, the servants of the church would come together, lay on hands, and use this oil. Why would they use it? Here's why. It was symbolic, and it was an opportunity to not only love this person, to lay hands on this person. You know, there's something powerful about laying a hand on someone else. I think if, if we could learn a lesson from COVID, it's just a hug, right? Hadn't been that long ago where we wouldn't do that, right? We weren't even shaking hands. Did you miss it? I did. There's something about human touch. And this anointing oil, what it does is it says, we're going we're to set you apart here. Symbolically, we're going to set you apart. We have focused all of our time and our attention. We're in your home, or maybe we're here, and we're anointing you with oil, and we're calling out to God on your behalf because we love you, and we're asking for God in his will and his purposes to intervene in your life and bring healing to your life. That's what James is saying here. So how do we pray? Well, we get together with the service of the church and we pray together. Is it because the elders have a hotline to heaven? I've been asked this, well, pastor, you're really close with God, so I, I know God will hear your prayers. I don't have a red telephone back here somewhere like the president does where I could call up on your behalf, call up God, because me and God are a lot tighter than you and God are. That's not the priesthood of the believers that Peter talks about. In 1 Peter 2, he says, if you're born again, you have access to God the Father yourself. There's a reason we don't have a box out here that you come in and sit in, and we sit in this little box, and you confess your sins to me so that I can then confess your sins to God. You have direct access to God the Father. So 
Is James saying the elders here have some kind of closer connection, some kind of back door to God? No. He's just simply saying that's what elders ought to be doing. He's simply saying that, that the elders, the shepherds of the congregation, are to serve the flock, and this is one of the ways we can serve. By the way, if you ever want to be prayed for and anointed, we are here to serve you, and we'll do it. You want to come on a Tuesday night when our church gathers to prepare? We, we gather every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. You want to come? You want to bring one of your sick family with you? You bring them here. We will anoint them, and we will pray for them right here. Or we'll come to you. That's the ministry of the church. We'd be honored to do that. So how do we pray? Well, we pray with the elders, leaders. But here's something else that James says. Look at verse 16. Notice this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You see those one another's? James is talking about the context of the local church. Last, this past Sunday night, we had our membership meeting and, and I did a small devotional at the end of that. One of the things that I said in that devotional is this. Uh, oftentimes, our Western culture, American culture, is a very individualistic kind of culture. So what happens is when we come to God's Word and we read God's Word and we, we, th we read the text that talks about prayer. For example, Matthew 6 where Jesus gives us the model prayer. Oftentimes we think about prayer as something very individualistic. Something that we do on our own between us and God. And that is certainly true. But did you know that the culture of the Bible, the background, the history of the Bible is much different than that? The Bible is a very Jewish book and therefore we have to consider Jewish context when we study it. And what we find within the Jewish context is that Jewish people did everything together. Everything was done in community. Everything was, was done as their families and as other families would get together. They lived together. They slept together. They, they, they grew their crops together to feed their families together. So when we read Matthew 6 and we see the model prayer, notice in that model prayer the plural words that, that Jesus used. He used us and we, us and we, all through that model prayer. So the idea is, is that there is absolutely the opportunity for you as an individual sitting in your car or in your home to pray to a holy God and he hears you. But not only that, there's something beautiful and amazing and unique when the church of Jesus Christ prays together. And all through the New Testament, from the moment the church began, all through the letters, what do we see? We see the church praying together. So how should we pray? Well, we pray for one another and we pray together. The corporate nature, not just praying alone, not being a loner, not going on it, going out and walking with Jesus just by yourself, but walking together with other people who are struggling with the same things you're struggling with. Look at verse 15. So how should we pray? Let's pray together with the church leaders and servants. How should we pray with one another? But look at verse 15, the first part of it. He says, and the prayer of faith. Here's how else we should be praying. We should be praying, believing that God hears and that God will intervene. I'm as guilty as anyone of just going through the motions of ritualistic prayers. What does that sound like? Well, you know, I, I got to pray today, so I'm just going to check the box here, and I'm just going to pray. Never really expecting God to do anything. Never really expecting God to move. Never. Have you ever done this? Have you ever prayed a prayer, and then God answer it, and you're surprised by that? You ever had that happen? I've had that happen. 
So, so God answers the prayer. I've had prayers answered that I, I would pray a prayer in the morning, and yes, it might have been ritualistic, it might have been just checking the box, but I'd pray for something that morning, and by the end of the day, God has already moved and, and completely flipped that thing on its head, and you know what I do? I'm like, wow. <laughs> Could it have been that I was just going through the motions? Yes. Whether we're praying by ourselves or praying with the elders or praying together with the church, we must pray prayers in faith, believing that God hears, that God answers. But here's the tension. Just because God hasn't answered the way you expected him to doesn't mean he hasn't answered. Just like with my starting story about my perspective and my persuasion of what should happen when I purchased a car, just because, just because God hasn't done it exactly the way you asked for it doesn't necessarily mean that God hasn't answered. He's not looking for ritualistic prayers. He's not looking for fancy words. He's not looking for vain repetition, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. He's simply wanting you to be real and be honest, and talk with him just like you talk with other people. You don't have to have all the words right. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Some of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard prayed are people who were just simply honest and forthright. So James says, when do we pray? In all circumstances. How do we pray? With the church together, collectively. But here's a question that I would imagine it may be on your mind. And it, and it arises out of verse 15. He says, in the prayer of faith, we'll save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, when James lumps these two concepts together in one verse, he never meant for this kind of principle to, to, to be derived out of this verse and some other verses in the New Testament. I think it would help for me to tell you a story. So way back when I first started in ministry, there was a young lady in the church I was at there who, who, was, who had a diagnosis of a, of a debilitating disease. This would be a disease that she'd be able to live a long life with, but it was going to be debilitating. It's going to be very painful. She was going to have to have a lot of medications. She was not going to be able to work. She would have to quit work. She eventually moves back home with her parents because of the care, and the, the, the care involved with what she needed with her medications and treatments. She needed to be home. So she moved back home because she was single, moved back home with her parents, and, she, and she's really suffering. And I can remember our church coming around her on a Sunday morning, praying for her, laying hands on her, and anointing her that very Sunday morning, probably about a week or two after her diagnosis. Well, weeks would turn into months, and one day I get a call from her. And she's crying on the other end of the line, and I, I didn't know what was wrong. So she asked if I could come out. So I go out there. Her mom and dad were there. And I walk in the house, and you can tell when someone's been crying for a long period of time. Her eyes were all puffy. And, but this time, she's already having to walk with a cane. And uh, we sat down, and, and here's, here's what she begins to, to ask me or say to me. She said, look, she said, I've been praying and praying and praying and praying, and I've been asking God to forgive me, and I've begged, and I've cried, and I've fasted, and I've done everything I could do. I've went back in my life, and I've 
ask God for forgiveness for every sin I've ever committed. And I even went back before I came to faith in Christ and I prayed through some of those things. And I've, I've prayed every prayer that I know to pray, but, I, but I'm still sick and I'm, I'm actually getting worse and the medications are causing all kinds of problems. So, so pastor, can you tell me why God has not healed me because I have asked for forgiveness for all of my sins? And I said, where did you get that idea from? She said, well, a couple weeks ago, some ladies from another church came to visit her, some ladies connected to another church that was connected to her family, and those ladies came to help. So they came into this young lady's house, and they came there to pray, but they also came there to teach her something, and when they sat down with her, they told her that the reason she had this disease is because she had unconfessed sin. And that they were there to lead her in a prayer of repentance, which would then would automatically turn into a prayer of healing because once she repented, then God up in heaven would then heal her body of the sickness and she'd be, she'd be disease-free. And this young lady for weeks had been begging and crying and fasting and seeking God, wanting to know what she had done wrong. And the verses they used was James chapter 5. So we have a question we need to wrestle with this morning. When I am sick, is it because of some sin in my life? Is it because, do I have cancer because I sinned? Do, do I have COVID because I've sinned? Now on the one hand, all sickness, all suffering is the result of one sin all the way back in the garden. So in one sense... If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, in one sense, yes, all sickness, all death, all cancer, all heart disease is the result of the fall in the garden. So let's, let's go ahead and put that over here in our, in our categories for one moment. Now let's, let's move to another category. For some people, the choices that they've made in their life, the disobedient lifestyle that they lived absolutely caused them physical illness. You know, our church, what I love about this church is that we run towards broken people. And, and in that running towards broken people with the gospel, there are people who've been destroying their life with drugs, destroying their life with alcohol. Some of them have destroyed their life with worry. And listen, you know as well as I do, if you're worried, your blood pressure's up, your heart rate's up, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, it affects you physically, and if you worry long enough, it'll ruin your health. You, you consume alcohol, and you consume it to where you are drunk, it will eventually ruin your life. If you are shooting drugs into your veins, it will ruin your health. So in that sense, so in one sense, yes, all death, all sickness is the result of sin. In another instance, there are choices that you make that will absolutely wreck your life. But here's where we want to land the plane. The reality is, is that not every sickness is the result of some sin that you've committed. We cannot say that every sick person has sinned in some way and God is up in heaven just throwing down a beat down upon this person. That is not true at all. It wasn't true for this young lady. It may not be true for you. We live in a broken world. And in a broken world, cancer, heart disease, high blood pressure, and all kinds of illnesses are part of living in this life. 
But just because you're sick doesn't mean that God is giving you a beat down over some sin you have committed. Job had some good friends, didn't he? Oh man, Job had some good friends. Those friends came around Job. Job's sitting in an ash pile. Job is scratching the sores with broken poverty, or broken pottery. And they look at him and say, Job, you know why you're there, right, bro? The reason you're there is because you have sinned. This is exactly what happened to this young lady. You see, the ladies who visited my friend, they went in there to solve the problem themselves. They went in there to solve this young lady's problems. They had all the answers. And by the way, anybody who can tell you with absolute surety that what you're going through is the result of some sin is taking the role of God a place they should never, ever take. Be careful with that, folks. Be careful with slipping your feet into the shoes of God, proclaiming that which you couldn't possibly know. So, when I am sick, is it because of sin? Maybe, maybe not. But James' connection of prayer and sin in this text is not James saying, your sickness is the result of your sin. James is saying that both physical sickness and sin can make you sick. But here's what James is saying. James is saying that the answer for both is a holy God whom we can talk to and find healing. That's what James is saying. And does it make you say anything other than that? Well, is doing a disservice to the text. One last question. So, when should we pray? In all seasons. How should we pray? With the church, with our leaders, with one another, and prayers that are prayed in faith. Is all sickness the result of sin? No. Not in the respect of your personal sin. And then finally, and I would imagine this is where you are right now, you're thinking, okay, I'm with you. Okay, I understand that. Check that box. I got that. But here's the problem, Pastor. I've been asking for the same thing for years. <laughs> I've, been, I've been begging God to move in this situation. And to the best of my knowledge and the best of my ability, he hasn't done it. So what have I done wrong? I mean, take a look at this particular verse. Verse 16 the latter part of it. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I actually like the King James Version better there. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Man, that's beautiful, isn't it? What is James saying? James saying that the prayer of a person who is right with God, justified, a son or a daughter, that prayer has great power in the process of when it is working. So although you may not see the answer you're looking for, God is at work. He hears. I th listen, I think we're going to be shocked. When we get to heaven and we take a stroll with Jesus, because I know we're going to, and in my mind it's always just been maybe he and I walking along and, and Jesus is saying, hey, here's some things I gave you. Let me tell you how that all worked out. I think one of the things that's going to shock me to my core is the prayers that I prayed that I thought didn't go above the ceiling, that he knew every intimate detail. Hey, you remember on July 4th, uh, you know, 1998, you prayed for this. Let me tell you how that all worked out. You didn't see it, but let me tell you what I did over here. And all over again, I'm going to fall on my face before a holy Lord and a holy God and just say thank you. But what if now we could begin to realize that this sovereign God who's in control of all time and space 
that he is intimately concerned about what you are struggling with, what you are sick with, what you are wrestling with, that he is intimately concerned about that, and God has, has made all the arrangements necessary for you to come directly with him, to him, with that issue, and have a conversation with him. What, is, what would you think if, if I were to say to you that God every day desires to have that kind of conversation with you? Well, if that's true, why would we ever do anything else? Why would we never, why would we get to a place where we're prayerless? But the question is, what did I do wrong? Well, let's look at verse 17 because James gives us an illustration, the last one, of a man named Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So James says, first of all, let me point out that Elijah was not a superhero. He wasn't wearing a cape. We often look at these Old Testament prophets and leaders as being like supernatural people, and we put them on a pedestal. When in fact, they're just people like you and me that God used. He says, first of all, Elijah is just another guy, he was a prophet. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James says, hey, here's this guy. His name was Elijah. He prays and asks God for it to not rain for three and a half years, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And at the end of that three and a half years, Elijah approaches God and says, hey, God, can you send some rain? And God sends rain. Well, you may be thinking, okay, what's that got to do with me? And by the way, my prayers that I'm praying to God are a whole lot lower on the scale of miraculous power than a drought for three and a half years. So again, what am I doing wrong? Well, it's what James doesn't say about Elijah that's very important here. And the reason James didn't say it is because the audience that he's writing to are people who were once Jewish who've now put their faith in Messiah. So they knew the background of Elijah. You might not know his background. Elijah was a prophet, and Elijah was called forward during a very tumultuous time in the nation of Israel. There were leaders that had risen to power, and they were ungodly to the core. And so Elijah is going to be sent to not only speak the truth to these leaders, but to also demonstrate the power of God, hoping that they may repent. So Elijah is sent to proclaim a message. Now, when you read 1 Kings 17 and 18, which is recounting this particular event, here's what you find out. Now, James's original audience knew this, but maybe we don't. If you read chapter 17 and 18 of 1 Kings closely, here's what you'll find. You will find that God was already planning to send a drought. God already had in his sovereign will that he was going to bring a drought upon his people for a particular period of time. So here's what happened. Elijah is praying in the will of God. He is praying back to God what God is already intending to do. And what happens? Well, God does exactly what he intends to do. So the focus here is not the prayer, the powerful man Elijah. The focus here is the power of God who always keeps his promises and always accomplishes his will. So he says to you and I, through our prayer life, come and join me. Let's do something together. I've got a will for your life that is perfect, better than anything you can come up with. So what I'm going to ask you to do is you and I have a conversation, and through that conversation, your heart's going to align to my heart. And here's the amazing thing. You have desires of your heart. 
You want to get over that sickness. You want your marriage to be healed. You want your prodigal sons and daughters to come home. Those are important things. They're important to you and they're important to God. But here's the thing. When we come to God and we talk with Him and we share our petitions and we trust Him and we pray prayers of faith, here's what happens when we get up from those prayers. We're not so much as focused on the results as we are the God who's in control of all things. And I would dare say to you that, my friends, is the purpose of prayer. That you'll be so engrossed with a holy God that you'll find peace in just simply being with Him. And while the problems are still there, and while the issues have not worked themselves out, and while God has a timeline that he's working out for his purposes and for his will, in that moment, you're not as concerned about when it's all going to work out as the God who promises he will work all things out for his glory and for your good, Romans 8, 28. So here's what happens. You fall in love, you go into the deep places with the holy God, and that trust and that faith is built and you worry less about outcomes and you focus more on a God who's in control. I know that some of you have a boat and that you're maybe you're going to go out on a lake this weekend. So when you're, you're, you've been out on the lake all day and you've got this big boat and you, you come into dock, right? You're going to come up to the pier and you're going to tie it off. You've got your rope and you throw it over the post and you're trying to get that rope secured. What do you do when you get the rope secure? Or maybe someone jumps on the dock and you throw them the rope. What's happening in that moment? You're not pulling the dock to the boat, are you? You're pulling the boat to the dock. Folks, that's what prayer is. Prayer is aligning us to the will of the Father. And in that, God says to us, ask anything you want to ask. Make it known. Put it on the table. It's okay. You want a Pontiac Fiero? Great. Put it on the table. Doesn't mean you're going to get it because that may not be the best thing for you because our Father's a good Father. Two things I, I want you to consider, two absolutes with prayer. Number one, absolute with prayer, prayer has purpose. There is purpose in prayer. Praise, forgiveness, healing, discerning God's will, getting guidance. Listen, finding courage when you're under attack, when people are coming at you from all directions. Where can you find courage? Where can you be grounded? Where can you get back to some normalcy? Only with the God of creation. And he says, do you come? Hang out with me for a while. I got something for you. So there's purpose in prayer, but not only is there purpose, but there is power in prayer. Praying together as a church family, asking the elders in the church service to come and pray with you and lay hands on you. There, there is power in healing. There are people sitting in this very room who God has healed. There's no other way to describe it. There's no other way to explain it. You're here today because God intervened. There's power in prayer, and there's purpose in prayer so as we close out the book of James, we understand that authentic faith, authentic true faith is a faith that returns to God over and over and over again saying, God, here I am. I don't have the answers. I don't even have the money to pay the bills. My marriage is in trouble. My kids are doing their own thing. And, and Lord, I can't fix this. I don't have the courage to fix it. I don't have the wisdom to fix it, but I know you do. So Lord, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to come back to you because ultimately, I trust you. Father in heaven, 
It is only through your goodness and grace that we can even have this kind of relationship with you. It is only through the blood of your son that welcomes us into that kind of relationship by which, as Peter says, we are part of a priesthood of believers. We have full access to you anytime, any moment, any circumstance. As followers, Lord, as, as we've been reconciled to you, we are called to come and to make our petitions and our needs known. But yet, Father, we understand that your will is perfect. We understand, Father, that you're in control. We understand, Father, that you can see the beginning from the end. We know, Father, that you have far more understanding than we could ever imagine. So, Father, even though we ask, we also accept. We accept that we don't know all things. We accept, Father, that we don't see what you're up to at times. We accept the fact, Father, that Maybe how you answer is not exactly how we thought it would come about, but we trust you and we follow you by faith. Father, for the one here not in the right place with you, for the one who's never put their faith in you, Lord, it's through a prayer, a, f a prayer that expresses faith in someone greater than themselves, where they're willing to surrender their life and follow you. Father, we seek your throne. Have your will in your way. Speak to the hearts of the people here and speak directly to their needs. But Father, more than anything, I pray that they're speaking to you about their deepest needs. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde